So, in part one of this episode, uh, we talked about Martin Sostra's life, how he was in uh, prison uh, twice, the second time through the government's COINTELPRO uh, program, uh, and he, um, when he got out of prison, uh, Martin Sostra opened up his uh, anarchist bookshop, we talked uh, a little bit about that and uh, about how he became a jailhouse lawyer and a revolutionary uh, while in prison. Uh, That brings us to part two of the episode where we talk about the manifesto he wrote while in solitary confinement, uh, The New Prisoner. And uh, this is a really interesting document. Uh, Martin Sostra talks about how he and other prisoners uh, got radicalized uh, while in prison and how prison is a place for radicalization. So it's, it's a very interesting document. I hope you guys uh, enjoy it. And of course, we have your favorite segment, my favorite segment, everyone's favorite segment. That's right, listener, I'm talking about Dumbass's Advocate. So uh, we have all of that packed into part two of Martin Sostra's The New Prisoner. Fascinating, interesting man, and one last word about him before we move on to the manifesto itself. In an interview for Frame Up, a 1974 documentary about his incarceration, Sostra drew a contrast between a political prisoner and a politicized prisoner. A politicized prisoner, he explained, is, quote, one who has become politically aware while in prison even though the original crime that he committed was not a political crime." Unquote. This is a point of view Sostra stresses in his manifesto a number of times. Prisons are places where otherwise non-political people are politicized and radicalized. This is one of the most fascinating and important insights, I think, that he has in the, or that he states I don't, uh, in, the, in the manifesto. From his point of view, this is a sign of authority undermining itself. Uh, but more on mm-hmm. this later, as we get into the meat of the manifesto. I just wanted to highlight that. The, is there anything uh, you want to add, uh, uh, Joe, before we move on to the manifesto? Uh, I mean, just that I want to say that, again, he doesn't call this a manifesto. Uh, and, and maybe... Uh, for those who view the word manifesto as a pejorative, uh, they might 
kind of bristle at describing this as a manifesto. It's published as a law review article uh, in the North Carolina Central Law Review in 1973. Uh, I think as we go through it, you'll probably see why we I thought of it as a manifesto and then so agreed. Um, you know, it is him uh, stating his vision for uh, how prisoners should become politically aware and what they should do with that political consciousness. Uh, and it's it really is a, a document that is calling for and envisioning a remarkable type of uh, revolution. Uh, mm. So I think, you know, based on, uh, again, our extensive expertise in this field, uh, we can call it a manifesto. Uh, and again, also, he wrote it in 1972. It's just after the Attica prison uprising, uh, which I, I think is kind of important to keep in mind because that is very clearly like central to his worldview at the time that this is uh, is being published. He is he has just seen this massive uh, prison uprising. He's been the subject of a political prosecution and imprisonment. He doesn't really know that he's ever going to get out uh, because he's uh, was sentenced to thirty or 40, thirty to forty one years. Uh, he could have reasonably expected to spend the rest of his life uh, in prison, uh, and, and again was only out eventually because of a political campaign that resulted in the governor granting him clemency. But that there was no certainly no guarantee that was going to happen at this point. One of the one of the things I really love about Martin Sostre is that, like, you know, on the one hand he's a revolutionary. And then on the other hand, like very, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, what would be considered a, a very like extremist revolutionary, right? But on the other hand, <laughs> what's he spend his time doing? Writing fucking law review articles, you know, court cases. Talk about like mm -hmm. investing in the system, you know? Uh, mm -hmm. Or rather, like that's a form of, you know, you hear the word praxis thrown around a lot. Even for the most revolutionary of subjects, you know, the most mundane and uh, uh, and 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 difficult of 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 things to do to like win court cases as a as a prisoner and get yourself published in law review articles. Like he was, that's where he invested a lot of his time, which is really really interesting. If I were interviewing him, I'd love to ask him about that kind of contrast. You know, Su such. Mm -hmm. Such investment into institutions while he was a revolutionary figure. It's, it's very interesting to me. Well, and as, as we'll see uh, right now, basically, uh, that the way that he went about, for example, writing a law review article, I mean, yes, he was invested in the system, but he begins, you know, go ahead. Do you want to read the first lines we can... See how he begins yeah. his law review article. Yeah, that's a good segue. So here's the best probably law review article beginning ever. Listen, pig, are you really that naive to believe you can fool and pacify us with nightly bribes of 10-cent candy bars and cookie snacks while caging us like animals in your inhumane steel cages? By removing the wire screen from the visiting room, but replacing it with the three-foot-wide table thrust between our mothers, wives, 
children and loved ones to maintain your inhumane separation by changing the color of our uniforms from gray to green and those of our jailers while exploiting our slave labor for pennies a day by establishing a phony furlough program which is programmed to exclude from eligibility 1690 prisoners out of uh, uh, 1690 prisoners out of 1700 by passing a token equalization bill after Attica? Well, dream on, pig. Well, the next rude awakening overtakes you. So stylistically, this is one of the best openings of any manifesto uh, nah. we've covered. Those, that's like the, the first, up until the question mark, that was the first sentence, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Put, uh, very, uh, very striking. And uh, the only, for, for my money, the only competition stylistically is uh, Valerie Solanas' Scum Manifesto. Uh, that from was the, the same, most... from sort of the same era. Yeah, from the same era, yeah. Uh, yeah, something about the 60s in writing. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, um, and, and this manifesto, uh, a lot like the Scum Manifesto, was, it was just a very compelling read. It was inspiring, informative, and and really just fun to read. You know, a, a thing mm-hmm. that the first line is "Listen, pig." You know, that's fucking mm-hmm. that's great. It's a lesson that if you're gonna write a manifesto, you ought to have a little fun with it. You know, <laughs> don't be uh, don't be toiling over this thing, uh, laboring over it without uh, throwing in a few uh, humorous lines. Yeah, if I, if I had a few notes to give old Ted Kaczynski, uh, you know, great manifesto, mm. Ted, but have you ever thought of having <laughs> a little fun with it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it's it's too late to give him R.I.P. that feedback yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. R.I.P. Uh, to Ted. This this episode yeah. is dedicated to him. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the whole, the whole enterprise. Yeah, uh, the whole here, show, whole fuck podcast. it. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, you know... It is pretty wild, the idea of this being printed in a law review. Uh, I, From a little bit of reading, it seems possible that there was like a kind of radical law professor associated with this law review who might have ushered it through. Uh, as a general rule, to my understanding, the way that law reviews function is like the, uh, the most kind of uh, ambitious and... Uh, you know, uh, f- frankly, like vanilla, like law students uh, take positions where they review, like they go through articles uh, that are potential, you know, potentially going to be published. And they're the ones that are doing like edits and shit on them, I believe. I'd say that having not done law review, but I think that's <laughs> how it works. And the idea of uh, someone letting through an article that begins with "Listen, pig" <laughs> is pr- pretty, pretty funny, uh, and and pretty. It's kind of hard to imagine that occurring uh, now, but I it it's pretty incredible that it did. I mean, it seems to me it is stylistically similar to like the Scum Manifesto, and and there are, I think you can see parallels to mm. Malcolm X some of what what he wrote uh also like some of the stuff published by like the Yippies and Abby Hoffman uh Weather Underground those like the the very kind of radical organizations in in the 60s who were 
uh, intensely opposed to the, the pigs, you know. Um, <laughs> I also think it's pretty interesting that he begins this article, this thing that's going to be published and that is still around. He had to have known this was going to be uh, pretty important to his legacy, I would guess, uh, that he would have had that insight. Um, he begins by pointing to the weakness of prison reforms. That's that's the mm-hmm. whole subject of this long... Yeah, not good uh, enough. This long... <laughs> well, they're not good enough. Of course they're not. You know, and he says they're not going to pacify inmates. But he, you know, that was central to his character mm. prior to 19... I mean, this is... He's writing this in 1972 after all of the court decisions for which he's famous. But that's what he spent like a decade or more of his life focused on legal prison reforms. Yeah. Um, and and it, he's saying, actually, uh, fuck that shit, you know? Yeah, he minimizes the importance of, uh, of prison reforms in the manifesto. And uh, and just, a, uh, I just realized, like a quick note, it's very, it's very fitting that... Uh, that a Muslim uh, black radical is anti-pig, you know, because they don't they don't eat pork. So it's uh, it all adds up. You know, he's very consistent, yeah. Martin. So it's true. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if that uh, that there might be some significance to that. I, yeah, I, I bet you know, that there that might have that might have been intentional. I don't know. And uh, here's what he says about prison reform. Your widely publicized prison reform programs will have the same success as your Vietnamization program in Vietnam, upon upon which they are patterned. Indeed, as in Vietnam, your repressive prison pacification program, subnom subnorm prison reforms, has already proven counterproductive in that it has set in motion dynamic revolutionary forces that will affect the overthrow of your racist capitalist system. Like, I mean, he's he's really, he crams a lot into a very few sentences, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, mm-hmm. So really hits the ground running early on in the manifesto here. The comparison between prisons and the Vietnam War is is fascinating. And this is the first of many times he mentions Vietnam in the manifesto. Sostra is always praising the Vietnamese resistance to U.S. empire and is in solidarity with them. He also mm-hmm. uses the many failures of America that America has had in Vietnam as a kind of proof that the gears of empire and the prison system do not run as smoothly as people might like to think. There are structural weaknesses within the system. By that I mean the military-industrial complex as well as the prison system that he wants to exploit. This is... Yeah, and I mean... I, uh-huh. so, sorry, I, I just... No, no, go ahead. I, I think uh, it's one thing to read this now... Uh, and and we know what has occurred with American empire since Vietnam. But if I understand correctly, there was, you know, Vietnam obviously occurred uh, kind of not so long after World War II. There mm-hmm. was this vision in the United States of the United States as this kind of like all dominant, almost unstoppable force when it comes to 
its its empire and its ability to exert its its will upon the rest of the world. And so when the the Viet Cong were successful in mm. uh, at, at least uh, slowing that down and making it very difficult for the Amer- American military, I'm sure that that shook a lot of people's confidence in what they had previously believed to be, uh, you know, this kind of boulder rolling down the hill that would just continue to to go forever. So you can imagine why that would also capture the imagination of somebody like Sostre, who's hoping that the same will occur with the prison system. You know, surely there's there's a way that we can do what the Viet Cong are doing. Yeah, it's really it's it's kind of amazing the the uh you know right now uh, you know we use phrases like intersectionalism right intersectionality to show to to describe how different ideologies kind of are entangled and intertwined but the, like the anti imperialist sort of ideology and, and and sort of prisoners rights has a very strong link in in people like Martin Sostre and and like black nationalism you know the Viet Cong. Mm-hmm. It was it was very inspirational. Uh, a, a, a very poor, a very oppressed group of people uh, resisting both French and American empire. You know this was mm-hmm. um, this was uh, uh, really. I think uh, it makes sense that it, that that it was very very inspirational to people in in the nineteen sixties mm-hmm. um, because they were. And they did win the war. They they beat America. Just like it's so weird mm-hmm. when America loses a war, it never says it's lost. They didn't say we lost Vietnam. They say we got out of Vietnam <laughs> or Afghanistan mm-hmm. too. We got out of Afghanistan. Not that the Taliban won. You know, it's mm-hmm. uh, uh, so uh, you know no losses for America yet, Joe. Just just <laughs> getting out. Just <laughs> temporary mm-hmm. retreat. Yeah. But I, I mean, it is my understanding that that was the Vietnam was kind of instrumental in causing people to think, oh, we we even if we can't, maybe we didn't lose, but oh shit, I guess maybe we don't, we can't always win. And I would guess that if uh, people like Sostre, who were just involved in the Attica uprising, where they did succeed, I believe for a while, the prisoners mm-hmm. succeeded in taking over. They took Attica. it over, yeah. And and. So they get a hold of that thing for a while, and then eventually, of course, they're they're they lose, and the uh, the warden gets back uh, in control. The, the state essentially takes back control of of the prison. But uh, I can imagine why you why you would look at this you know this new realization that America the the American Empire is not impossible to defeat, and think, well, shit, maybe we can make maybe we can beat them in here too. Yeah, on. On the links uh, between, you know, um, the weaknesses in the military-industrial complex and the prison system, uh, here's a long quote from the manifesto that's, that's really worth reading. Are you so spiritually dead and blind that you fail to perceive the cause, effect, and consequence of your repressive acts? Are you so hung up on the repressive genocidal aspect of your racist-oriented technology that, despite your resounding defeat by the historic Vietnamese people who, barefooted and bamboo-housed, neutralized your advanced technology with resolute 
human spirit and revolutionary warfare, you still refuse to believe that you that your uh, perverse technology cannot prevail over the human spirit? If Attica fell to us in a matter of hours despite it being your most secure maximum security prison fortress equipped with your latest repressive obstacles, every one of your prison camps has now become a revolutionary training camp, feeding trained revolutionary cadres to each revolutionary foco in the ghetto. End quote. Like, this is so inspiring and good. Like, it's, like, by, like, it's so well-written, you know? Uh, and, and mm-hmm. like, his language is very... He packs a lot into a little space. He's, uh, 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 uh... And the Attica uprising, you know, did not inspire a revolution. But his point is still valid, I think. That prisons revolutionize, uh, or rather radicalize people who might not otherwise mm-hmm. be uh, radical. And it's part of what makes the uh, uh, what he's saying so much uh, uh, more sort of inspiring and powerful. You know, it's, it's trying to... Like, he's in a shitty situation. I mean, the guy's in solitary confinement for, you know, a good chunk of his two prison sentences. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk about, like, you know, finding hope from almost nothing. Yeah. Well, and in that way, you would imagine that maybe the intended audience for this are other inmates. Uh, mm. And if I understand correctly, a, point. a lot of the stuff that he wrote was circulated within uh, some of the prisons that he served time in. Uh, I mean, as a matter of fact, I believe that that was the subject of uh, some of his discipline because he, like, he at one point was accused of possessing racist literature and that literature was like his own writing um, <laughs> uh, so uh, guilty as so charged he, your honor i hate white people I, you know <laughs> yeah ex- exactly so uh but it's it's kind of wild that like a thing that i i don't know and i don't think he was, he's ever explained is why publish it in a law review article like right. in a way what is the point of telling the power structure that you're getting ready to try to fuck them up, you know? Because that is what you're doing when you publish your plan for a revolution in a law review. The only thing I can guess, like, it's not a logical thing, it's like a personal thing. Like, he spent so much time with the law, and you have to have some investment in it when you're a jailhouse lawyer to like train yourself in the law and like win court cases. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's something of your, there's something with that way of thinking and talking that clicks with your brain and you, and you're like, this is important. I need to get it out. It doesn't make a rational sense, but uh, I could see mm-hmm. it being a personal thing. You know, I, uh, um, I don't know. That's my guess though. Yeah. I, and I, I think it's also fair to say that uh, I think he would be reasonable to feel like uh, it's justified to kind of brag in the face of the people whose ass right. you're about to kick. Like, I'm about, I'm going to kick your ass. You guys are kicking my ass and have been doing so for a good chunk of my life. Get ready, motherfucker. We're, we're coming for you. Um, and, like, he... 
he clearly enjoyed that type of confrontation. Hence his, you know, mm. in constantly fi- fighting with these, uh, with with the people in charge of the prisons. Um, I will say what he writes, and and again, it, it, you have to think about the the audience, but it strikes me as pretty. Uh, optimistic, I, I guess, is one way to put it. Um, in the same section of this manifesto, he writes, quote, prison reform has pro- proven, proven counterproductive in that it has set in motion dynamic revolutionary forces that will affect the overthrow of your racist capitalist system. So, you know, that's that's what he says is happening, that there's going to be a revolution, it's going to overthrow the racist capitalist system. And uh, I would like to think that he is correct about that and that that is what uh, prisons are in fact doing. But I think that there's probably some evidence that that actually the opposite of that is true. Um, And at least uh, that essentially capitalist forces are trying to use the prison system to bolster (laughs) their, you know, their, other efforts outside of the prison system. Um, you know, since he wrote this manifesto, it's pretty clear that the the effect of the carceral system, especially after mass incarceration, is to just wreak havoc on uh, black people in the United States, especially uh, to incarcerate uh, black men at incredibly uh, high rates, to thus create these situations where all kinds of black families have uh, less income, have uh, no fathers present, um, and occasionally uh, mothers as well. Um, it, it has created, uh, and, and also I, I should say it's not obviously just uh, black men and women, but also uh, a lot of uh, people who are Latino um, and, uh, and a lot of people who are just poor. I guess, uh, regardless of race. And it has created a uh, what's effectively what feels like a permanent underclass that is very beneficial if you're uh, a capitalist uh, running a system that is uh, exploiting people's desperation uh, because there is just a, a whole group of people who, shit, uh, can't get jobs anywhere, will mm. go ahead and take this terrible job at a... Uh, you know, a temp agency working three and a half days a week at a uh, a warehouse somewhere, um, like though that is like a very valuable yeah, class. I, I think for, that's what for the capitalists. I think that's what Marx and Engels called the reserve army of labor. You know, you mm-hmm. always need that desperate pool of people to uh, for the desperate employer who needs to hire someone quick. And have them do a job that, you know, uh, uh, would otherwise be difficult to get someone to do. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it really yeah. does serve the system to... And if you don't so, have enough of that in your own country, you can, you know, with technology and the jet engine and all of that, you could, ex- you know, export it to, you know, the third world, which is what America did in large part. Now, so I think you mm-hmm. uh, should be careful here about oh. agreeing with me too much yeah, on fuck you, Joe. Uh, my, my point there. <laughs> Because we have reached the time in the episode for everyone's favorite segment, and in fact, the only segment that we really do on this podcast, and that is Dumbasses Advocates. Dumbasses Advocates. 
And uh, today, uh, Sos will be playing the advocate for the dumbass. Um, so, again, this is a situation where I'm essentially saying, uh, <laughs> for lack of a better word, that Sostre is being a dumbass. Uh, he's being <laughs> too optimistic. He's arguing that the capitalist system, uh, using the carceral state, uh, it the capitalist system cannot triumph over the human spirit that is present among these prisoners. Um, you know, he uses the Viet Cong as this example. He's seeing that as as a as optimistic uh, narrative for him. Um, but in 2023, from our perspective here, it's a little difficult for me to see how the Viet Cong or the prisoners in the U.S. prison system have succeeded in defeating the capitalists. Uh, you know, so Sos, as an advocate for Mr. Sostre, the dumbass here, uh, how can you say uh, that he's correct in projecting that the New York State prison system uh, is going to collapse uh, at the hands of these uh, revolutionary prisoners. All right, this is so defending so straight. Here we go. Uh. <laughs> so, as the prison lawyer's advocate in the illustrious court of dumbasses, I would like mm-hmm. to say a few words in my dumbasses' defense. <laughs> First of all, his words may not be factually or historically true in 2023 if you're into that kind of thing i guess but they are uh not intended to be read that way they are rhetorically compelling and give anyone who reads them a future to build towards and to hope for i mean what kind of manifesto writer would Mr. Sostre be if he did not sound at least a little far-fetched to the ears of the uninitiated? Do you think Lewis Powell's defense of the American businessman didn't sound just as absurd when he wrote the Powell memo? I mean, come on, Joe. I'm no spring chicken, but I wasn't born yesterday. And now we live in <laughs> Lewis Powell's world. They won. So... If you see Mr. Sostra's words as too, would you say, optimistic? Maybe it's Mm -hmm. you, Joseph, who is too pessimistic. I mean, prison liberation will never happen with that attitude. Yeah, okay. So I'm going to step out on a limb here and say that Lewis Powell, as a uh, tobacco lawyer about to be a Supreme Court justice whose advocacy was on behalf of the business class in a capitalist system, a capitalist state uh, that was already heavily dominated by that business class, he might have had a little bit of a smaller hill to climb than uh, Martin Sostre advocating on behalf of uh, largely uh, black prisoners uh, who are being targeted by the police state and the same capitalists who Lewis Powell uh, was uh, helping to support. You know, that's, that is a, uh, a difficult, a much more difficult task uh, to overthrow the prison system from within the prison than to uh, essentially project the, uh, the business class up to the even further upper echelons they were already very successful when lewis powell was was advocating and helping them design their little uh plot to to overthrow 
the rest of our fucking society. Um, but so so I would say the analogy or the comparison there is not uh, is not in your favor. Well, um, you know. The, the Attica Rebellion, Joe, and the Vietnam War hardly rely on the authority of the U.S. Constitution uh, or any mm-hmm. sort of, like, business class uh, within America. Uh, in fact, they happen despite these forces or in contrast uh, to them. And I think you're mm-hmm. doing a very clever sleight of hand by conflating Mr. Sostra's activism in the courtroom Uh, With his larger revolutionary agenda, I give our listeners more credit than that. I don't think they're going to fall for it. Uh, Again, the Attica Rebellion is well... Okay, the Attica Rebellion was unsuccessful. The Vietnam War, uh, you're, you're correct in identifying the United States didn't succeed, but it's not as though the Viet Cong did succeed and that now... Uh, we live in a world, uh, or even a country in in Vietnam that's run by the Viet Cong. It's Vietnam, as as best I understand it, is now more or less a capitalist uh, state. Uh, that's that's uh, more or less. I mean, I'm sure American interests have plenty of uh, sway in Vietnam now. So it's not as though the capitalists lost, even if the American military did. I just think those examples are not terribly helpful. Um, you know, as for whether or not he is relying on the U.S. Constitution, if you read the manifesto, he does repeatedly refer to the way in which they're treated unconstitutionally, and that uh, he he does note, as we'll discuss in a little bit, that in fact the true lawless actors are the prison guards and and basically the American political elite, which is fine and well, but. Uh, if you just reverse this the situation and you put the prisoners in the same place to be the makers of law and order, uh, you've just reproduced in a lot of ways a lot of the same problems. Uh, and I do think, in a way, that's kind of what he's suggesting uh, should occur. So, uh, anyway, I, I I'm sympathetic to what you say about the hyperbole because it is surely it's. Uh, He's being hyperbolic, and that is what you have to do if you're advocating hyperbole? for a very difficult, hyperbole? difficult has, to reach. Has the U.S. had any major incursions in East Asia since Vietnam? I mean, if you want, it depends on how you measure success or even the Attica uprising. We can, we can, you know, you can, we can debate rounds and rounds the criteria of what is a, it uh-huh. isn't a successful <laughs> uprising and what and what effects mm-hmm. it has on on history. And maybe we should debate it uh, uh, for rounds mm-hmm. and rounds, but at the end there would be no winner, and Joe and I would no longer be friends. So mm-hmm. uh, maybe this is uh, a good place to conclude this edition of Dumbasses Advocate. I'll call, uh, I'll call that the white flag. That's uh... <laughs> we argue, you decide. That's our new tagline for the segment, Joe. How, how do you like it? We argue, uh, you decide. Uh, I, I like it as a, as a brand. In this particular <laughs> instance, though, uh, I think what's evident is uh, that you lost. So, um, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna I'm gonna wait to see what our listeners say. You know, they're the real judge. Well, I think what we need to do with this segment 
is start taking it really personally and actually push it until we are <laughs> angry at each other. And also that the podcast lasts for like three and a half hours. Uh, and we become, even, even though we essentially artificially create this uh, uh, argument before we even start the episode, we become emotionally invested in it by the time it's it's over. I think that I think that'd be good both for the podcast and, and for our friendship. I'm 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 totally down to do this and uh I think it is, you know, our our friendship is a small small uh sacrifice for the podcast stardom that I'm aiming for, you know. Yeah, I'm, that's I'm, true. I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to, you know, uh become a star here and if I need to climb over mm-hmm. your body to get there, Joe, let's let's have some conflict. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. <laughs> well, that's yeah. That's that that works. Um okay, so let's get back to this uh this manifesto now that we're finished with dumbasses advocate. <laughs> um so uh I I really do think it's it's kind of remarkable and this is where I, I think he's a little bit like uh, Valerie Solanus with the Scum Manifesto, where she, you know, she's she's asking Valerie Solanus for those of you who didn't uh, listen to or have not recently uh, encountered uh, our episode or the the Scum Manifesto itself. She's advocating for the elimination of all men uh, in in society, um, and so it's it's a bit of a radical ask. Um, I'm but, personally against that. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. politically, maybe I see your point, but personally, <laughs> but but by advocating for like precisely what she really wants and and asking for a radical uh, a radical thing, she is freed up to make a lot of really powerful statements and cut through a lot of bullshit. I think in that right. in that manifesto. And, uh, you know, listener, feel free to tune in to the, it's like episode five or six of this podcast, The Scum Manifesto. You can, you can hear what I'm talking about. Uh, but I think that Sostri does similar stuff with the criminal system here. Um, he's cutting through a lot of bullshit with remarkable precision. He's not, I think in large part because he's not bound by the uh, constraints that people typically put on themselves when they make arguments about the legal system. He's he's like this whole thing is illegitimate. Uh, so he's reframing law as itself like disorder. He's saying that the state authorities, the the wardens, the politicians, they are the ones who are the outlaws. They are the ones who truly are uh, purveyors of violence. Uh, so here's here's what he says. Quote. We are all political prisoners, regardless of the crimes invoked by white racist oppressors to legitimize their kidnapping us from the ghettos and torturing us in their cages. You don't believe it? Well, what crimes did our forebears commit when they were kidnapped from Africa, imprisoned aboard slave ships, and brought to America where their labor was exploited for 350 years? Didn't you legalize these crimes against black people and codify them in your slave codes? Didn't you legitimize your genocidal slaughter of the American Indians and the theft of their land by legislating Indian laws and the Homestead Act? Were not these crimes politically motivated and formed the very foundation of United States capitalism? After our forebears were forced to build for you the richest country in the world with their blood and slave labor, the descendants of the r- white racist kidnappers 
murderers and robbers who inherited the blood-stained loot have now deluded themselves in the belief that they are the guardians of, quote, law and order, that their victims must recognize them as such, acquiesce in their oppression, and relinquish all claims to their stolen heritage. Uh, I mean, he is... I mean, he he's... It's very difficult, I think, to argue with that understanding of the American legal system uh, and the it's, function it seems of like law the, in the United States. The only thing you could do with a guy like that is put him in solitary confinement <laughs> and shut him up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and obviously the these are he's bringing out the kind of uh, the most egregious and indefensible uh, examples of the way that law is is used to legitimize certain types of you know absolutely abhorrent violence and uh and criminalize other types of violence uh but obviously those same the same kind of principles that allowed the genocide of native Amer of americans and and the the enslavement uh of black people in the united states um that continues to play out the same forces play out when uh people in prison are uh denied basic human rights and constantly subject to abuse and there are a million other ways in which that continues to to function um so he is really i think identifying the way that there's not a lot of integrity or he's basically saying there's the opposite of integrity to uh, the American legal system, especially the American criminal legal system, which is what he was most familiar with and what he studied at, at length. I mean, he, this is not coming from some guy who's, who's just a person who's pissed about his own oppression. This is a guy who has uh, managed to teach himself how to be a lawyer by just reading shit in the law library. Like, he is not, yeah. uh, he, he is not a, a person who's, who's un- uh, familiar with to, the basic texts or whatever to to be a lawyer and win you know like to play mm -hmm. with the rules uh um and and win mm -hmm. and uh one of the other things i like about that passage you just read joe is that he says a lot in in very little space here you know you could mm -hmm. like take a whole class on imperialism or colonialism uh, and 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 sort of like learn all of that stuff throughout the semester, mm -hmm. you know, and like he's cramming it in there. But uh, I want to focus on his use of rhetorical questions. Uh, he's making claims in the form of questions, but he's taking the place of the inquisitor or in the, the interrogator, you know, especially as a prisoner, he's usually on the other end of that kind of voice mm -hmm. so he's kind of appropriating the voice of authority of the inquisitor and the subject of his interrogation and his inquisition is white oppression itself like american imperialism and and white mm -hmm. oppression he is the prisoner but he speaks with so much authority in in this document and that authority mm -hmm. isn't an institutional one his authority is a moral one and, and that's mm -hmm. what makes it so powerful. This is a guy who has no, prisoners have no institutional authority. And so what is your weapon? It's uh, right and wrong. And, and who has a clearer view of right and wrong than uh, a prisoner who 
uh, who was dubbed, you know, prisoner of conscience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think that the the effect that it has on us as we read it uh, does speak to the power of that moral authority, and it does give a little bit of credence, I guess, to his argument that this moral authority could eventually uh, take on the institutional authority of the uh, of the prisons of the American mm. criminal legal system, like that that there is something that. There is power there, even though uh, it's kind of abstract. And, and again, as, as I was advocating earlier, <laughs> I don't think there's a lot of evidence that it has taken concrete form. Uh, but that's not to say that it never could. Uh, and, and certainly, I guess you could look at some of the events of the last few years as perhaps evidence that there is a growing appreciation for the type of moral authority that's mm. expressed by people like Martin Sostre. Um, now, in this document, uh, he is not being diplomatic, really. He's not really, again, he, he writes it, he publishes it in a law review. He is not uh, trying to be nice to uh, lawyers, judges, politicians, uh, certainly jail staff, uh, or really the American public in general. Um, in his view, these people are everyone, essentially, who's allowing this to occur, uh, is permitting and encouraging the abuse. He says, quote, The people support and acquiesce in the continuance in office of these mass murderers. He's talking, again, about uh, the, the people who killed all these people in Attica. They raise no outrage cry against them. They make no demand for their impeachment, no demand that the mass murderers be arrested, charged with murder, and indicted. The message, therefore, is very clear. The white, racist people of this oppressive, racist society are our enemies who go along with every injustice perpetrated against us by their elected representatives. Their support of bestial, genocidal acts against us, against us, reflects their consciousness. Uh, in other words, you know, even the voters, even anyone who's, uh, who is not raising hell about this is uh, culpable in, in his eyes. And I this, can understand why he would feel that way. Yeah, this is like also uh, very reminiscent of the reasons Osama bin Laden gave to bombing the World Trade Centers. Basically, anyone mm -hmm. complicit in this system is is guilty and 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 um and and deserves mm -hmm. to die i guess that's not what social saying he's not saying anyone deserves to die but uh you know it's it's sort of um he kind of is he kind of is he <laughs> talks i mean he's talking about a revolutionary armed struggle right. he says it's okay to take hostages uh he's he he refers to Eichmann also. I mean, I don't know if you remember Ward Churchill, uh, who wrote about yeah. little little Eichmanns, uh, that how all the people in the World Trade Center were like little Eichmanns. Oh shit! Uh, he, that was a huge like that phrase was a huge controversy back in the day. Yeah. Well, Bill O'Reilly like made a good chunk of his career off of exploiting Ward Churchill, who was this academic who talked about how. It really, in a way, all those like bankers and shit working in the World Trade Center were kind of like little Eichmanns, uh, at, at, you know, referring to the, the looking back. The, the German. Uh, he has a point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, I, I mean, 
here, Sostre does refer to Eichmann, and he refers to how uh, the Nuremberg uh, uh, trials or counsel or whatever, they, they weren't super kind to Eichmann when he tried to say that, hey, I was just uh, following orders. Yeah, I was just I a paper pusher. I, I didn't I, kill anybody. I just signed yeah. a piece of paper. I had to do what what Hitler uh, wanted me to do, or whatever. Uh, and you know, Sostre is saying, "Listen, that's you know," and, and this was much more uh, recent. The the dealing of Eichmann and and the the dealing with Eichmann and, and understanding that he he was guilty for going along uh, that was relatively recent uh, when he's writing this in 1972, and he's saying that's not that's not okay. These and I'm sure. He so he is taking on basically even like voters or average people as well as I'm sure like just the jail guards and stuff that he interacts with on a daily basis who are literally following orders, but they're doing shit that I think he understandably compares to uh, some of the horrific shit that occurred uh, even during the Holocaust. You know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it is uh, it is in many ways. I mean, he's calling this genocidal. And I, I don't think that's necessarily unfair in some ways. Yeah, and, 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 and he does call prisons concentration camps, you know? these It's mm-hmm. like, and, and this, this goes back to what I mentioned earlier, Joe, like, what the hell are prisons for, ideally? Ideally. What, the, what are they supposed to do to people, right? They're called a penitentiary. You're supposed to be penant, right? You come mm-hmm. out sort of... Uh, uh, repentant and, and, and you've paid your debt to society and you, what, like get a, get a job and start paying your taxes or whatever. How, let's say, yeah, that's mm-hmm. the goal. Fine. How does treating them like shit, putting them in solitary confinement for the stupidest of reasons, depriving them of like decent food, of the ability to read books, to practice their, how does that help them? become uh, a you know functional member of society and the answer is it doesn't it's just interested in it's like this cosplay of christianity we punish the wicked there's no god to punish the wicked so the state has to punish the wicked and we determine who the wicked is and they just burn in hell and everyone can feel good about it because they're not in it Mm -hmm. well that and that's the uh that's the sort of moral or, or like religious, I, I suppose, like way of looking at it. But I think maybe what Sostre would say is that it's uh, it's essentially like it's a racist capitalist order that is keeping people like him in line. And the way that you keep people like Martin Sostre from being on the outside and uh, helping encourage uh, serious political resistance, as he was doing when he was running that, uh, you know, anarcho-communist bookstore in the mid-60s and helping uh, at least sort of, uh, you know, encourage youth to be radicals, they sh- they shut him down uh, and they put him in jail. And the certainly the prison system does have the effect of uh, the, it's, it's useful to maintain the status quo that is beneficial to the you know as he would say the racist capitalist order so it it's kind of it kind of does two things sostra is pointing out how it politicizes people but it also contains politicization right it's like mm-hmm. a necessary thing for the state to contain the most politicized uh, uh members of its population people like sostra who went to prison once 
got politicized, was released, and became a politicized citizen. You know, opened up that mm-hmm. bookstore. Was like, uh, okay, maybe he was or wasn't making literal Molotov cocktails. He was making metaphorical Molotov cocktails in that in that bookstore. Enough for where the authorities wanted to shut him down, you know, and, and punish yeah. him for doing it. So it's, it's, um, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of the, the, it, it, it's incredible how, like, you know, looking back at the sixties, we kind of, <clears throat> at least I, more when I was younger than now, I used to like idealize the sixties, like, holy shit, why can't we be like it was then? right uh, mm-hmm. uh this revolutionary spirit but uh one of the things that is also you know important to remember is like how hard the state comes down on you when you actually exercise your constitutional rights mm-hmm. you know things like freedom of speech or assembly or the practicing mm-hmm. your religion especially if you're in prison forget all of those mm-hmm. your your and even when you get out of prison there's that question yeah. on every job application. Every job application. Have you ever been convicted of a felony? Which is like a guarantee you won't get a decent job. Uh, so mm-hmm. what the fuck is the, uh, uh, the you know the point of prisons? That the even when you're out of it, you have a scarlet letter, perpetually punished and cursed uh, in mm-hmm. in a way. You know. Yeah. Which which, which explains why uh, people in in prison would uh, be envisioning a, a radical transformation of society, not just a few small changes. Um, and he is... I'd like to hold my head up and be proud of who I am But they won't let my secret go untold I paid the debt I owed them but they're still not satisfied Now I'm a branded man Out in the cold When they let me out of prison um, He is essentially declaring uh, that actually like black prisoners are effectively like these like independent argue- arbiters of what is is actually like legitimate or legal, you know, uh, and that's the, that's like the mindset that uh, the sort of political consciousness that then will uh, eventually affect this revolution. Um, he says, quote, hostage taking, he's referring, obviously, again, to this Attica uprising, hostage taking is to us as legitimate a means of struggle as was your seizure of agents of the crown during the American Revolutionary War and the seizure of British tea during the Boston Tea Party. We, and not our oppressors, are the sole deciders of what means to employ in our liberation struggle. So, I mean, he's he's basically saying uh, kind of almost anything goes here. This is war, because uh, he's referring to the American Revolutionary War. He's, he's saying this is war, and if we, yeah, uh, we took some people hostage, some people died, Obviously, most of them at the hands of law enforcement, but uh, but not all. Um, and that is, in his view, moral, given the stakes here and given the type of struggle that they're involved in. Yeah, I mean, and this is like another 
interesting, not explicit, but thematic tie-in with the Vietnam War. Uh, Ho Chi Minh, uh, before, you know, he became the revolutionary leader that he was, he was educated in the West, and he saw the American Revolution as a, you know, point of inspiration uh, uh, to to have his own revolution against the oppressive, uh, you know, first French and then American uh, uh, forces. So, um, this kind of like, you know, historical irony of America becoming the very thing that it's fighting uh, is, mm -hmm. is, is something that was, that is true, uh, for, I guess, like, uh, Sostra as well as for, uh, Ho Chi Minh. So another interesting tie in there with, with Vietnam. Um, it's, 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 it's amazing. Like we live in a generation that like Vietnam was like such a big deal. It permeated everything. And, and it's so, it's almost forgotten now. Yeah. I mean, well, there, <laughs> there've been, a lot of other ca catastrophic uh, <laughs> implementations of, yeah. of American If that was the last imperial, catastrophe, uh, <laughs> yeah. people would remember uh, it better. Yeah, <laughs> good point. So so back to the manifesto. Uh, so a after he's sort of describing how hostage-taking is a, a legitimate means of struggle, um, he later it talks about um, the basically his prior efforts to try to reform the existence of being in prison uh and and he did again he was a plaintiff in these high profile legal cases he wasn't actually the lawyer he was the uh he was a plaintiff but he was clearly heavily involved in like the decision to bring these cases and in uh he would have had to have been working very closely with his legal team um in these cases that ended up making it very far like uh it's remarkable to me how how much attention he managed to get in these cases. Sostre versus Rockefeller, Sostre versus Otis. There are a couple of Sostre versus McGinnis decisions. He was like constantly suing the people who were <laughs> imprisoning him. That's, it's really that's remarkable. Um, but he, he does write in this manifesto about 1972 about how essentially the, the prison system in New York is not complying with the orders of the federal courts. The federal courts are saying... Uh, that prisoners have certain rights and go figure the new york prison system is just like yeah uh, good fucking luck making us do that i mean what are you you gonna come in here and you're gonna send judge what's his name in here to enforce uh that dictate because you know we're gonna do what we want mm -hmm. um so you know again in those cases the courts had held the prisoners had rights to due process in certain instances especially when being sent to solitary you're supposed to they, they said if you're going to be sent to solitary for like a year you have a right to uh, be told why, uh, to uh, present evidence suggesting that you shouldn't be sent to solitary for a year, uh, you know, to be represented by legal counsel. To, someone should be overseeing this. This should not just be the decision of one, uh, you know, shithead jail warden who decides that we're going to send Martin down to the, uh, the, the, uh, the gulag for fucking a year. Um, anyway, so... Uh, that he's he's supposed to have you know there there are these rights to unfettered access to public officials some a little bit of like freedom from cruel and unusual punishment uh it's a pretty limited right if you read that uh mm. that opinion um you know again the fact that he was treated so badly uh un unfortunately i think has probably had the effect of making 
these cases like a little bit less impactful that he did establish certain rights for prisoners especially in the new york prison system uh, some of these are federal cases so they would apply elsewhere uh or the the precedent would apply elsewhere but at least uh you know my guess as to how this is typically worked out is that because he was a political prisoner who was constantly being fucked with in a totally i mean there's no way even even in the courts there's no real way to justify what was happening to him uh he was being abused uh and so that uh, of course uh it's important that he was the 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 courts told him uh, or told uh the, the jail that he had to be in one instance like released from solitary and that he had to be compensated and that he did have certain rights but later on down the line when uh a different prisoner uh was had a had a slightly different situation that was a little less egregious mm. you can imagine that uh the art the attorneys for the jail would have said well you know we can we can permit this type of uh abuse mistreatment because it's actually not as bad as what the judge said was illegal in you know so street versus rockefeller etc yeah this kind of like tendency of the courts to like uh uh or or not just the courts but the institutions involved like to take like a slightly less egregious case and say well we we can do what we want right uh despite mm-hmm. there being like not only a call for prisoners rights but you know they do it is their rights uh, all a lot of what social mm-hmm. is trying to say is like hey you should just treat us how you said you were going to treat us to begin with you know and mm-hmm. um that kind of so there's like a so there's the law that everyone's supposed to follow especially the institutions that administer the law and pass uh, you know pass it and but this is something that goes beyond the law it's uh the law is there and yet it, it, it's something within the system that wants to punish people it goes back mm-hmm. to this like okay like why not let prisoners do these things what the fuck is keeping you from actually letting them do what they do as like prison wardens and prison guards and what's keeping the judges like you said judge uh, judge thomas isn't gonna walk in there and like inspect the prison right like mm-hmm. well why the mm-hmm. fuck not you know like uh um th- there's no there's this from the top there's a half-hearted desire to oversee these rights are are enforced and at the at the ground level there's no desire to wh- what's to say about the society that um you know uh, uh we're oh fuck i sound like an old person what's to say about the society <laughs> we're living in joe god damn it you know i sound like an old man well, but you know well, like I think, really uh well something you can say about the uh sort of moral or, or, or whatever the integrity of the judges who who yeah aren't really going to walk in there and and, and pro- I, I can say with relative certainty that most of those federal judges most judges period are not going into prisons not they're not going into jails to make sure that anything is run the way it's supposed to and these are the same judges whose decisions are responsible for countless people spending countless like hours and days and months and years in in these institutions 
they they the <laughs> the lack of uh, accountability or frankly like concern that's expressed uh, in by those those judges is pretty uh, remarkable but that's it, it is part it's part of the system you know and that's what he's calling it like in a way. even even as a judge just that like if you're a police officer just police officer just as like a human being to be in that system a DA a judge you have to in some way dehumanize the other side to do your job you're just treating mm-hmm. them like fucking like numbers on a spreadsheet you know what I mean like you cannot treat them like people uh, otherwise mm-hmm. you'd lose your mind and you you couldn't do your job even right yeah so there's like so many layers of dehumanization there's the dehumanization of the prisoner which is the worst you know but the authorities are also dehumanized in their dehumanizing practice they become monsters mm-hmm. who who very casually uh, and with like endless lists of justification and and legal precedent or whatever continue to uh, uh, just like treat people like shit and and to sentence mm-hmm. them to uh, all these like awful like he said he was like imprisoned for decades for heroin possession you know like absurd mm-hmm. absurd uh, uh, kind of sentences with a clear conscience. Like, to go and do mm-hmm. that day in, day out. Martin Sostra was one of thousands that Judge Thomas fucking did that to. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about Clarence Thomas. This is another Judge Thomas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's an imaginary mm-hmm. judge. But you know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's just... Um, it's, That's it's... why I always say that the judges are the real victims. <laughs> That's, That's what always I'm been my at. position. That's what yeah, I'm my ultimately position is getting They're at. the ones... I'm really concerned about. Hey, I if I'm going to be a real dumbass's advocate, I got to advocate for judges. <laughs> that's the uh, real, yeah. That's the real dumbass pool right there that I need to dip into. That's <laughs> the true defense attorney. There, you can you can defend uh, the purveyor <laughs> of the most violence. Yeah, in the spirit of Lewis Powell, you know, stand up, yeah. stand up for the for the big guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> So, uh, Sosha goes on to list um, demands drafted by prisoners in 1971 who are being held in in Greenhaven prison. So, uh, you know, he's not just coming up with the demands in this uh, in this manifesto all by himself, but you know, he's 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 copying what uh, what what the you know people on the ground were doing. There mm-hmm. are 12 demands in total. And we won't go through all of them, but it's worth reading some of them. Just so, again, you get a sense of how horrible and inhumane the conditions of prisoners are and were within the American uh, prison system uh, in, in, in the 1970s. And, and you know, it's not, not much has changed today. So there's demand number eight. Quote, we demand a well-balanced, wholesome and nutritious diet. That the FDA inspect all penal institutions to enforce cleanliness and diets. Like, that's the demand. Like, uh, follow FDA standards of of cleanliness. Or number don't, nine, like, don't feed us. Don't feed us shit that makes us sick. Ex- like yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, or or demand number nine. We demand proper medical attention, both by the prison hospital and dental department. Holy shit, just that word. 
Like what a uh, like your your teeth are fucking rotting. You have a you have a mm-hmm. root canal you need done, and and once the prison guard gets wind of that, just leaves you rotting with your toothache for like a month or two before sending you to the like uh, really inhumane shit. We demand proper medical attention both by the prison hospital and dental department. We demand that the dental department use and administer Novocaine for all filling of teeth. This is his fucking Mm -hmm. demand. Use Novocaine when putting fillings in our teeth. Or, number Mm -hmm. 10, we demand an immediate end to cruel and inhumane treatment and brutality by prison officials. Uh, These brief sort of demands evoke powerful images of what life must have been like in these prisons. And uh, I again, I, I bet things haven't changed much since the 1970s. I'm no expert on prisons, but I don't get a sense that things have become better. Yeah, I, I'm not uh, an expert either, but I, I can say uh, w- with some certainty that I, I don't think that there's been like a dramatic change uh you know whether or not people get novocaine for example you know that that probably is is typically administered um you know but you can i mean that that image of like having a prisoner uh who's got a tooth issue and goes in and they're like yeah we'll drill this thing but we're not about to numb it for you good luck you know i guess we'll strap you down and hope that uh Jesus. you can handle it and i I, I don't know if you've ever had a, ca- a cavity drill without Novocaine, but if it's like a small one, it's not a that big of a deal. But if you, if it's a, I, I would can't imagine what it's like to have like a really terrible one or like uh, that's is right, you know, close to the nerve or whatever. Mm. Um, no, okay, so th- there is, as we said earlier, I mean, there's this vision of of a revolution, but also even at the end, he kind of also has a vision for the society that would emerge from this revolution. He says, quote, our independent... Go ahead. Sorry, I mean, it wouldn't be a manifesto if he doesn't have a vision for society. This, that's one of the criteria for a manifesto. <laughs> yeah, it, it certainly makes it, uh, our case that this is a manifesto even stronger. You know, that he's saying, here's what's going to happen. He says, quote, our independent black nation will be a socialist nation based on the principles that people and not property, are the most precious of all possessions. Having freed ourselves from 400 years of genocidal white racist capitalism, we're not about to imitate our white oppressors by establishing a black capitalist nation. So that he, he is, in, this is a, a socialist uh, manifesto as well. He doesn't really go into a lot of detail about what, what that looks like, but uh, he is clearly identifying that capitalism is in large part the the reason he's in the place he's in. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It makes me think of what Killer Mike would think. He's always talking revolution mm-hmm. but he owns apartment buildings. So it's uh Yeah. Uh it's 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 really uh yeah, I love Killer Mike, but his rapping, but it's kind of his politics are kind of bullshit. It's it's Well, we'll have um, to uh We'll have to do Killer Mike's manifesto uh, on our next. next <laughs> yeah, podcast. in a future yeah. episode. I just, I don't know why I'm shitting on Killer Mike. It just well, reminded me of that. You know, this is like the opposite of of, of that of that kind of mentality, mm-hmm. basically. 
It's uh, mm-hmm. you know he black capitalism is uh, is sort of um, something that he's against, and you know, and and you know with the Clarence Thomas stuff being in the news lately, sort of uh, uh, you know black people who are complicit with the system and uh, and sort of uh, uh, you know keep it up and and defend it, you know, like he does, is kind of like in the in the zeitgeist, and and that mm-hmm. and that's what makes like Martin Sostra's voice so much more sort of piercing and and relevant to our times you know like every paragraph i read in in this thing i'm like it's like he wrote it yesterday in in defense of killer mike and not in defense of clarence thomas uh like martin sostre's vision here did not come to pass and a lot of the stuff that he said was going to happen didn't occur and so you know i i don't think it's unreasonable that people have looked for alternative vision, alternative mm. version of, of how uh, things could be improved uh, because this didn't this didn't happen. Mm. Uh, it hasn't yet. Uh, again, I, I, I think that's fair uh, to to question whether or not eventually it will. It's it's a uh, you know it's a it's it's only what fifty or, or so years ago, sixty years ago, um, but. Uh, Okay, so the final paragraph, um, this is this is what he's occur- hoping uh, or maybe believes this is going to occur after the enactment of, of his program. He says, quote, We, the new politically aware prisoner, will soon galvanize the revolutionary struggle in America to its new phase that will hasten the overthrow of your exploitative racist society, recover the product of our stolen slave labor, which you now enjoy, and obtain revolutionary justice for all oppressed people, uh, and that's where you could you see he is writing to like the white racist class. He says like your exploitative racist society. That's who he's talking to mm. as he publishes this this law review article. That's interesting, like that you because earlier you you mentioned how it seems like his audiences are prisoners. You know, it's um, mm-hmm. and I. He has so many audiences in mind, it seems like, when he's writing this thing. Uh, I think, like, both Prisoners and the Law Review people and um, sort of fit into his, you know, uh, uh, into into sort of his, uh, um, you know, the, 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 the intended audience. It's so interesting how it shifts mm-hmm. that way. Um, mm-hmm. And also, like, you read the last final lines of the of the manifesto which are really uh just like the rest of it very powerful but there's also like something at the very end that's interesting and telling after sostra has finished laying out his case uh, for more human treatment of prisoners he signs off on the document with his name martin sostra but right below his name is a parenthetical note and these are the I guess the last last words of the of the document in keep lock for refusing to shave beard and uh this guy just hated being told what to do you know and he kind of puts that you know and he wants that in the law review as 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 you mentioned joe like yeah they put me in here because i wouldn't fucking shave like just so you know uh, uh this is fucking bullshit you know and um he resisted his oppressors 
at every every chance he got in every little way that he could even adding a little parenthetical at the end so uh i think it's pre pretty uh, easy to admire someone like martin sostra yeah i i think it's it's definitely easy to admire him and i i certainly do not not only in that uh you know he he clearly lived like a life of like a, a lot of integrity but as we've said he i mean he was brilliant in the way that he wrote this thing and the way that he managed to like even from a position of like no power he managed to like uh be a part of like really being a th a fucking thorn in the eye of the New York state prison system for years you know you can tell if you read the cases the the way the warden treated him was just terrible and it had to have been because this guy was so good at fucking with him you know? <laughs> he just he was just everyone hated uh, him yeah because so straight i'm sure was about 10 times smarter than, than the, the mm. jail warden on top of uh you know the probably the 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 judge and the prosecutor and whatever it's just that he was stuck within the system that he's identified as uh having no integrity and being solely there for the purpose of, uh, of, of destroying people like him. So, uh, yeah. it's a, it's a hell of a, hell of a manifesto. It really is. I think probably maybe the best composed one, mm. um, perhaps. I mean, the, well, the scum manifesto, it's hard to, it's hard to beat. But. Yeah. The, the scum, it really is like these, those two are at the top of the, heap for me like they're so uh uh interesting and thought-provoking to read um uh th this one politically the other one just kind of stylistically and and in terms of its ideas too the the scum manifesto like it's really mm -hmm. the way that it dissects masculinity and what uh, uh manhood is is really really fascinating and along yeah. like freudian lines but this is this i mean yeah, I I really loved reading this thing. It I, I kind of it's very rare that I read something and I feel very excited as I'm reading it. You know, you get this genuine mm -hmm. like energy on the inside as you're reading a text, and that you know um, that happened uh, reading this. I was like, holy fuck, man! This guy is he's not not only is he not pulling any punches, but it's everything is so uh, uh, compact. It's not. It's dense, but not in an impenetrable way. It's so, there's he crams mm -hmm. a lot into a little space, and it's so clear what he's talking about. It's really incredible. yeah. I I bought the little booklet at the Zine Fair. Walked outside, sat down on a bench, read the whole thing front to back. You know, mm -hmm. in, in whatever thirty minutes. Like it was a. Uh, but I I just it was like a a very enjoyable. Or, yeah. Well, it's it's hard to call it enjoyable as it's describing what's uh you know the. Uh, genocidal treatment of people but it's uh it, it was it's it's pretty incredibly written. compelling yes i mean i did i read yeah. it in one sitting too once i started i couldn't stop same with solanus i mean mm -hmm. it, it's it says something to uh to his ability to um i mean he was he he really was a very very good writer but uh so there yeah, you go he, uh Mar Martin Sostre's ghost uh, gets the club manifesto uh, seal of approval. I'm sure he's uh, really excited and happy about that. Um, <laughs> that that he's got that. I'm sure uh, everybody associated with Martin Sostre is really ha really uh, 
gratified the club manifesto has uh, we've if, given if you would state. like the club manifesto seal of approval please email your manifesto to club manifesto hang on mm-hmm. 420 at gmail.com there we go there you go club manifesto 420 <laughs> at gmail.com we're gonna get back to you in like at max like eight to 10 12, 12 months 12 yeah exactly. yeah it's yeah. it's hard to hard to say but it'll be so- somewhere in there we absolutely are totally going to have at some point seen it and read it. Yes. Uh, all right. All right. It's been fun. Uh, till next time, uh, Club Manifesto signing off. Take care. Bye.